Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Dalton. Our guest this week is Representative Tom Davis. He served 14 years in the U.S. House of Representatives representing Northern Virginia. He had a long career in public service, and we're really excited to have him on the podcast this week. But before we start the episode, I want to make sure that you follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod, or you can email us flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Congressman Davis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. you got your start in politics in 1979. Uh, you were first elected to the Fairfax County Board of Supervisors. Can you tell us about what inspired you to get involved? In yeah, I was government? 29 years old and I ran in a district nobody thought I had a chance and I got 63%, which tells you if I'd known then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have run because I wouldn't have thought I could win. But I really got my start um, in back in the 50s when I carried some stuff for Eisenhower in 1956. I think I was six years old. And it just, it just with me, something, there was a spark there that I really liked politics. 1960, I gave the speech for Nixon at my elementary school. I'd memorized all the House and Senate members by the eighth grade, and so my family was from Nebraska, and I impressed our two Nebraska senators, and they appointed me as a page. So I did four years at the Capitol Page School. In those days, you could do that, where I went to school from 6 to 10 in the morning and worked in the Senate the afternoon. This was in the mid-60s. Um, got a full scholarship to Amherst, because our and, and uh, was chairman of the Young Republicans up there, but one of my classmates was a guy named David Eisenhower who had married Julie Nixon. And, and uh, I remember after Cambodia and Kent State, I was down back down in Arlington, or I guess Falls Church, living there uh, and uh, sleeping on a neighbor's couch for the summer because there was no room in my mom's apartment. Would, uh, so I slept on a neighbor's couch. And But David called and said, how would you like to uh, come down and play some wiffle ball on the White House tennis course? I said, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> so I'm in my jeans, tennis shoes, T-shirt, and uh, he says, before we play, I want you to meet Mr. Nixon. And he took me in, and uh, Nixon spent a half hour with me talking about campuses. and what they. He said, Mr. Nixon, this is the guy I've been telling you about. And uh, at the end of it, Nixon turns. He says, how'd you like to work for me? And I worked at the White House, and uh, for the rest of that school year, went up and did my uh, senior thesis at Amherst. was on a political realignment in the Outer South. Uh, then went to, came back, worked on the campaign, got drafted, came back. Uh, went to law school at the University of Virginia while still working on the campaign in 72, and the rest is uh, history came back, ran for the county board, then to Congress, and kept winning. Yeah, so on that, uh, after serving Fairfax County for 12 years, what motivated you to pursue national office? So I, I knocked an incumbent out for chairman of the county board. That's our equivalent of mayor, and it's a county of a million people, so it's a, it's a big deal. I beat her two to one swept in a Republican board for the, for the only time in history. Uh, and I had, you know, I just, um, if, getting elected and governing are, are really two different skill sets. I faced a huge debt crisis in the county and stuff, and we resolved it. We got selected best financially managed county in the country, and I said, what else can I do? And we had a Democratic incumbent sitting in that, sitting in the middle of my district. And I took her on and, and beat her. Uh, I beat her in 1994, which was a Republican year nationally. But it was not in the urban centers in, in Virginia. So, and in, uh, in, in, uh, we had two congressional candidates that had run in 92 and ran again in 94. They both did worse in 94. One, Kyle McSlaro in the 8th district, and one in the 2nd district, uh, Jim Chapman. Uh, and my district was worse too, but, uh, but uh, and I had Oliver North at the top of the ticket, and he got 29% in my district. But uh, we, I had a good local base. I had the endorsement of the Washington Post. I had the business community behind me, and I won it uh, 54-45. Wow. 
Wow, and you continued that winning streak for seven consecutive elections afterward, and you held the, re- uh, the district for Republicans for 14 years. Right. How did you manage to hold on to that district for so long? I, I, I know getting elected, if, if, you, if you work hard and you know your constituents, so I disagree, my constituents disagreed with me on impeachment, they disagreed with me on minimum wage, they disagreed with me on the life issue, but I, I did a lot of other things. I talked about the things we had in common, uh, I was able to deliver for them, and it didn't, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they never really laid a glove on me. My last reelect, I was down to 56%, but my Senate candidate, George Allen, uh, who's running for re-election, got 42%. So I, I faced it. It was a huge draft, uh, you know, a wave coming at me, and I still managed uh, to, uh, f- to uh, finesse it. But my wife had lost her seat in the state senate after 10 years, and I just said, Jingri, I was termed out as a committee chairman. I said, let's have a life. Let's have a life. And I'd had a job offer for a million bucks uh, when I was in Congress that I toyed with, but the leadership said, we need you to keep your seat. And I stayed. And I said, you know, I think I can I can do well out here. And I suffered from a disease uh, called maltuition. Your parents probably suffer from the same disease. <laughs> and so uh, I thought, you know, this is the time to replenish the coffers and uh, and, and move ahead. And so I went out, I got a job with Deloitte, gave me a generous offer. I served on a couple of boards and I spent the next 10 years uh, kind of, uh, you know, building some wealth so for my kids and so I could have a comfortable life and my wife won't let me quit working, so I'm still working. <laughs> but from that time campaigning, do you have a favorite memory from the campaign trail? Oh, I got, just so many, so many memories. One of my favorites, I'm working a, a um, bowling alley because at 9 o'clock there's nothing else to do. You can work bingo games. You can get a lot of hands at bingo games, but once they start calling, and bingo games are 95% old, old women. Um, but um, after nine o'clock, you could go to bowling alleys. And I would just go in, I'd start going down the lanes and shaking hands with everybody. And one guy said, you big guy, he says, I ain't voting for you. And I said, well, well why not? He says, because I'm a convicted felon. <laughs> so I, I didn't get him. Um, and look, what you have got to do is you can't react if somebody says something bad. That's the worst thing you can, particularly now in the YouTube times, you, you can't. So you just have to be programmed that you're going to get a certain percentage that give you the finger or tell you they hate your guts or they don't like you. And you just smile at them. And I was programmed to say, well, you know, if I can ever do anything to help you, I hope you'll call me. And I, you just go on to the next one. You go home and kick the dog. But that's, what you, that's how you have to handle that. And uh, so many people make the mistake of going back or trying to say something smart and you you want to inside but i learned early on that there's no percentage in that mm-hmm. uh, and you're just you, you're not everybody's going to vote for you yeah so the northern virginia that we know today is decidedly blue and your own district's been held by a democrat for the past 12 years what do you think most contributes to this change i think it's two things i think it's the change in the issue matrix that the republican party has uh, emphasized when you move to social issues in these affluent areas, it, it, you get a little bit of a backlash. Uh, if you eco- if you go with economic issues, that's different. Uh, and so, um, the I emphasize the economic issues as I voted uh, could vote against minimum wage laws. I have a free trader, uh, very anti-regulation. I, I was my economic record was as conservative as anybody's uh, in in Virginia. In the Virginia delegation, we had a number of conservatives. My social record was more mixed. Uh, I was pro-life, but I also uh, voted for ENDA, which was the Indiscrimination Employment Act. It didn't you, you didn't discriminate against gays. When I was on the county board, the board took off, took away the gay newspapers and the libraries. I put them back in. I said, Look, libraries are for everybody. You know, we don't make these kind of judgments. We serve, ev- I represent everybody. 
And when somebody said, oh, you took a contribution from so on, I said, I speak to everybody. I represent everybody. And that was kind of my mantra. So I had a very inclusive group. I put put the first Asian on a school board in Virginia when we appointed. I put the first Hispanic on a school board in Virginia. Uh, I reached out to the communities that had been ignored for a long time and kind of brought them into the fold. Their values were as conservative as anybody. You go to the mosque, you won't find a more conservative group than, 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 than your Muslims on uh, issues like marriage and, and just in, in general, very family-oriented. They're turning off and pushing the mute button on Republicans because of immigration or maybe the war in the Middle East or something else. So you got to talk about what binds you together. And I stood up for them. They had some zoning difficulties out there. Nobody wanted a mosque in their neighborhood. And I said, well, we have Christian churches across the street. Of course, they're entitled to a place. So I built some bridges doing those kind of things. And people may not have agreed with me on everything, but they always thought they could get a fair shake. Yeah, and you were quick to hold leadership in Congress once you got there. You were the first freshman representative in 50 years to hold a subcommittee chairmanship. And you continued to work your way up. You went to the NRCC as chairman. And that's an elected position. Elected position. So I had to, um, I had to um, knock off the incumbent campaign chairman, who was Gingrich's guy. Uh, I, I beat him solidly in the caucus because in 98, we hadn't, uh, we'd, we'd lost seats and the members had expected us to win seats. So I saw an opening. If it was a factionated race, I wasn't sure where I'd stand, but I got out early in front with about 30 or 40 public supporters and scared everybody else off. So I got John Linder, who was the chairman, one-on-one. And at that point, it was mine. Now, I had the gun groups and everybody opposing me because uh, my, my gun record, in a, as you can imagine, in an urban district with high-rises is going to be a little bit different than people living out. It wasn't liberal, but it was not, you know, it, my, I think I had a D from the, from the NRA. <laughs> Uh, but I brought the NRA to Fairfax. They were headquartered there when I was the head of the county government. I, I brought them there. So, uh, so I wouldn't wasn't meanness. I'm just re- recognize the constituency I represented and try, trying to represent their views. Um, so uh, I ran for campaign chairman. Uh, we had a five seat lead in the house. If you go back to the 2000 election, every pundit in this town predicted we'd lose the house, and we didn't. We lost the Senate. We lost the presidency until it went to the Supreme Court. But we just, we outsmarted them, we ran better races, and then they asked me to do it again in 2002. And I didn't want to do it in 2002. We held the presidency. You always lose seats when you're, we picked up eight seats. So I had a good record, and I used that to become a a chairmanship of a committee and jumped eight people in seniority. Well, things have changed a lot since the early 2000s. So which electoral and campaign strategies did you rely on then and how have things changed the most? Well, it's all di- you've got a lot of digital stuff now and, you know, I'm not sure I understand all of that. My first race, um, I simply bought the, I bought the, uh, the voting lists from the state. I bought an alphabetical list and I bought a street sheet. And I Xeroxed the street sheet, and I just took that around and started ringing doors. And I rang everybody's doors who was a registered voter. And uh, I looked up and knew if they'd voted in a primary before and what their inclination is, but there's no party registration. And then they all got a note from me within two weeks saying it was nice meeting you, Bob. I made a personal note about it. And then the week before the election, they got another note saying it was nice meeting you in April when I you know, rang your doorbell or you were watering the plants or whatever. My favorite story is uh, I'm in the 7-Eleven after the election. I've been elected county supervisor and I'm, you know, 29 years old. The lady walks up to me and she says, oh, Supervisor Davis, she said, football died. I'm saying, what's she talking about? She says, yes. She says, my little dog football died. She said, but you know what? She said, you sent me a note and I got it the week before the election and you said, give football a pat for me. 
And I thought, anybody that thinks like dogs, that's the kind of person we want. He says, we've never, we've never vote Republican, but we thought, that's the kind of person we want. Now, it sounds corny, but she had a problem about a year later, and she didn't know what to do. She called my office, and we, we solved it for her. And she was there for life for me, but she also had some faith in the, in the system. So it sounds corny, but I tried to connect with everybody on a one-on-one -on -one basis, whether it was where you went to church, what about your kids, where did you go to school, what teams do you root for, what's your puppy's name, all those kind of issues. Instead of talking about, I'm pro-life, where are you, or I'm going to cut your taxes. If it got into that, I'd talk about it. But that connection, you can't stop that connection. Yeah. And uh, that I, it, it's a lot of work. I rang a lot of doorbells and wrote a lot of notes, uh, but it worked. Wow. So once you made it to Congress, you became chairman of the Committee on Government Oversight and Reform in 2003, where you led several high-profile investigations. Which one do you believe was the most impactful, and can you tell us about what it's like to lead congressional investigations? Well, two of them were, and first of all, the steroids in baseball. We changed baseball forever. They, everybody was taking steroids at this point. It was rampant. Kids were taking them. Kids in high school took it so they could get into college. In college, you're taking it to compete and maybe make the pros, and the pros are competing it so they can get bigger and stronger. And it was an epidemic. And uh, we headed off the hearings uh, with uh, uh, Taylor Hooten's dad and talked about how his kid committed suicide under, under and, and a couple other people. It was becoming epidemic. And we got baseball to change its policies. So now there are strict rules against that, strict penalties for violating it. Never would have been done. Bud Selig, who was the commissioner, called me afterwards. He says, Tom, I know we gave you a hard time, but thanks for helping us get it done. It just never would have gotten done in the collective bargaining agreements. Um, and the other is I, I led the investigation on uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina and wrote a, it was the Democrats tried to boycott it. And, and I wrote a note to every Democrat on the coast inviting them to participate. I sent a copy to their newspaper. Uh, so, they, so they showed up, and we ended up writing a report that was uh, unanimous. Uh, it was a good report. It was critical of, of the administration in some ways, where they deserved to be. I remember Carl Rove saying, why are you doing this to us? I said, Carl, it's got my name on it. That's why. I want my kids to be able to read this and know I gave this a straight shot. And I got a unanimous vote from the Democrats and Republicans on the committee. So how did you balance those responsibilities and leadership with your responsibilities to your constituents? Well, I got out of leadership as fast as I could after, <laughs> after uh, the campaign committee because the party was moving right and my district was moving left. You asked about Northern Virginia. I talked about the issues, the social issues of change, but also Northern Virginia has a lot of federal workers. It has, it's pretty secular and it's very multi-ethnic, and these are groups that, are, that have not been part of the party base. So I had to invent my own base on that. If, if I went with just where the Republicans were, I'm a 40% I'm a candidate on a good day. Um, so uh, you have to understand you know, where your district is. Being in the leadership identified me with leadership decision. Being a committee chairman where I had jurisdiction over government contracting, jurisdiction over federal employees, I got them, uh, I got them eye benefits, I got them dental benefits. Um, government contractors, where I wrote a lot of law that contractors like, those kind of things uh, basically endeared me to my constituents in a way I could separate myself from the leadership of the party that was becoming increasingly unpopular. Hmm. So you've authored, authored over 100 pieces of legisl uh, legislation spanning from government reform, uh, increasing efficiency, transportation, cybersecurity, all of it. What is one legislative initiative or law passed during your time that you feel like should have received more media attention? I think the bill I wrote, um, if, if you live in D.C., you don't really have a, a, a state university. You have UDC, but it operates more like a community college. So kids who grow up and live in D.C. don't can't go to the University of Maryland or the University of Connecticut or the University of Missouri. 
they have to pay out-of-state tuition wherever they go. I wrote a bill that got it passed that they would pay in-state tuition at out-of-state universities. And if they went to Georgetown or GW, they would get a discount. And the federal government made up the difference on that because they didn't have a state university. This has enabled thousands of kids from this city to go to college that never would have had that opportunity before. We can talk all we want about uh, wealth disparity and this and that. That was a tangible way of basically letting kids know this is a possibility for you. And uh, I'm very, very proud of that legislation. Uh, I introduced it and got it through. Um, I also sponsored a bill that got the city out from under a $5 billion debt they'd inherited at the time of home rule. Um, so, you know, we, we did a lot, but I don't think they get, they get enough attention in history, but I think it affected thousands of lives. So over your long career in public service, is there a particular moment when you realized that you were making a real difference? Oh, all the time. I mean, even on the College Access Act, which I talked about, I also sponsored school vouchers for the city, which are still there. That was passed the House by one vote. Never passed the Senate, but we fold, folded it into an appropriation bill, and it, it went through uh, in that way. Uh, there, but, but when people come up to you and said, you know, I, I went, that College Access Act allowed me to go to college, that made a difference. When I built the first homeless shelter in Fairfax County, a lady came up to me. She said, you know, my husband had beat me up. I didn't have anywhere to go. I had two kids. I went to this shelter, and it gave me a couple months, and I could get back on my feet. I really appreciate you. Because nobody wants a homeless shelter in their district, I can tell you that. And I took the heat from the local neighbors because we would had a man freeze to death on Christmas night at Bailey's Crossroads. I said, we, we can't allow this to happen in our county. We're, we're, we're better than that. And we started it uh, that way. So, yeah, I mean, that doesn't sound like conservative, but, you know, as conservatives, we know government is, is not a very efficient deliverer of services. So we end up looking to the private sector sometimes because they, they understand, basically, they can cut through the red tape and get it done faster. Um, same with the, getting the Fairfax County Parkway completed, uh, getting the money for the, I mean, just a whole lot of things, I think, that affect the lives. So it's been a, a, a really a great opportunity to serve uh, and, and a great satisfaction looking back. Yeah, so you've done a whole lot more than just being in Congress. And we know that many Georgetown students aspire uh, to enter careers in public service. Uh, they're considering law school, working in the public sector, private sector, all of that. Um, these are all fields that you've been a leader in. What advice do you have for someone just starting their career who may not know what path to take or, or how to move forward? You know, I went to law school and I did practice law for a bit. I wasn't that good, but I ended up being um, general counsel to a public company. And I'm with a law firm now, Holland and Knight uh, downtown, which is a 1,400-member uh, national firm. I'm the rector at George Mason University, so I'm chairman of the board there and, and teach there. Um, there are a lot of ways to do public service, but I think we all ought to try to live something bigger than ourselves, bigger than just providing for ourselves and living in a bigger house and doing kids. And so I've tried to do that uh, post-Congress, uh, serving on the airports board and getting the rail to Dulles, phase one completed, phase two funded, before I left that to go to the board at George Mason. And at Mason, we've done some really great things. If you look at we're, we're climbing the ranks. The thing I like about Mason is um, we pride ourselves on who we take, not on who we reject. And so it's a lot of first time, uh, uh, first in, the only person in their generation to go to college. 40% uh, of our graduates start at the community college and they transfer. We found out, we did a survey, about 17% of the kids who started the community college and want to go four years ended up completing it. So we worked a deal with the community college now where you enroll there and you want to go to Mason, we'll give you a Mason card, let you go to our athletic activities first day. 
and we put an advisor on you so the courses you take you know are transferable. So we're trying to close that and give these people opportunities. M many of them, I said, are first generation. They're smart people, but that's the only opportunity they're going to have. So I said, you try to live this life outside. And I teach there, as I said, I had 90 kids, I think last semester, I only got 25 this, but um, you know, I, I teach for free, obviously. I give them money, they don't pay me anything for it. But the satisfaction of, of having kids come up after class eight, this really challenged me, I really like this, it's good. The hard part is once in a, once in a while you gotta flunk somebody, but they gotta, <laughs> they gotta try. They gotta try, but you know, you, you owe it to the alumni to make them earn the degree. So we have a final segment we like to do on Fly on the Wall. It's called the lightning round. Okay. These are quick questions, just okay. a quick answer. As a Northern Virginia native, what is your favorite local food spot? Uh, well, Peking Gourmet at Bayless Crossroads. All right. Who was the Democrat that you most enjoyed working with in Congress? Um, well, I love Jim Moran, who was my next door neighbor, but Henry Waxman was my ranking member on my committee, and we did a lot of stuff together. If you could return to Congress and work on any issue, what would it be and why? Immigration. Uh, it's haunted us. We're, everybody's back in their corners on this thing. There's some easy solutions to this, but everybody's got to give. And we owe it to the country to get the border. Uh, I, I favor a high wall and a wide gate, but people need to go through that gate. They shouldn't go uh, around. We need to regulate this. And so I, that would be the issue I'd want to get solved. Well, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. Before you head out, make sure you follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Fly on the Wall Pod, or email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. See you next week. <laughs>